I've been giving a series of talks, as many of you know, on the theme of from the ordinary habitual mind to the Buddha mind. And originally this came out of a series of talks on the sequences, we might say, of the spiritual path and identifying a number of different stages. And the first stage was we are caught in the ordinary habitual mind. And then I thought it might be really good to focus on that so-called ordinary habitual mind to identify what are the features of that mind. And by mind, I'm really meaning mind, body, all the different parts of experience. And to identify, uh, as I did, 10 different parameters of the ordinary habitual mind and go through them with a fairly simple framework. First, what is this as- what is a particular aspect of the ordinary habitual mind? And we're on the fourth right now. <laughs> and uh, I think the first one was ordinary aspects of the thinking. The second was the ordinary conditioning of the body. The third was the ordinary conditioning of the heart, we might say, of the emotions. And the fourth that we're on is the ordinary conditioning around a sense of self. And so for each of these, and I I identified 10, because 10 is a good number, (laughs) has some use in East and West and I know when I was doing my book called The Engaged Spiritual Life, my original draft that I sent to the publishers was 11 chapters, and they said, no, no, no. (laughs) 10. And so, 10 it was. Uh, And so, uh, the, the framework, the simple framework for each of these is identifying what is the basic nature of the conditioning around this aspect of ordinary habitual mind, as I'm, as I'm calling it, number one. Number two, what, as far as we can tell, does the Buddha mind look like? We could call that point B and the first one point A. And then number three, how do we get from point A to point B, so to speak? Right? How do we, how do we practice so that we work through the ordinary conditioning and get towards awakening. So, very simple way to organize. And so, the theme for uh, today is the second uh, talk and discussion. We'll also, today we'll do a bunch of practices uh, that investigates the nature of the self. And as many of you know, there's a uh, core teaching from the Buddha that says that some kind of confusion around the nature of the self is one of the three main areas of confusion and delusion in our lives, that we have a sense of a solid, separate, independent, permanent self, which actually isn't accurate. Right? And that can lead to a number of different uh, issues. Uh, you know, particularly, and we need only read the uh, 
newspapers or hear the news to get a sense of what some of those issues are. And yet the uh, teachings about self and, as it's usually translated, not-self, of the three areas that are pointed to as uh, uh, most central to our practice. The first is impermanence. The second is dukkha, which I like to translate as reactivity, when there's reactivity in the mind. And the third being not-self. Of those three, the third is clearly the most confusing. Certainly the most confusing conceptually and actually quite confusing when we try to understand it conceptually. And I'll, in a moment, say that my way that's developed over the years of working with this is primarily to be practical about teaching on self and not-self. And so very, very confusing for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I like to quote the um, Jewish-Buddhist humor uh, joke, which um, goes like this. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there is no self. So maybe we're off the hook. <laughs> and, you know, all sorts of confusions that I've mentioned. You know, one other one is that it seems, and then one of the ways that we can make a lot of sense of some of the subtleties of this is to understand the important developmental nature of exploring the nature of the self, that it may be necessary to develop and have a fairly stable sense of self before one goes beyond that sense of self. So we bring in a developmental dimension, which again can make it more you know, more complicated than the other two. Impermanence, fairly straightforward. Things change, right? Not so, not so complicated. And the fact that there is reactivity in the mind that we grasp, that we push away, easy to see. The self, another matter, right? More, more confusing. Um, and so the ways that I have found most useful to work with this, which we explored last time, are uh, first, and that this is really the really the sort of the summary way of working with it is to first of all look for when there's a thick sense of self or a big sense of self or the sense of self is uh, what is uh, dominating right. And this can occur for a lot of different reasons, but we have a thick sense of self when we are reactive, when we're judgmental, when we are um, self-conscious, when there's a very strong self-image in a given activity or um, state of affairs, uh, when we have a lot of self-centered thinking, right? Again, not... These are not necessarily all negative, but the the the, thick, the self sense of self is thick in these situations. So we can notice these sort of things. We can notice when there is, um, you know, maybe fear or a lot of difficult emotions really sort of coagulate around a, a thick sense of self. And so one of the ways that we practice over and over again is that we study 
when there is a thick sense of self. We study it, you know, okay, there's a judgmental mind. Let me explore it with mindfulness. Let me, uh, let me be with the reactive mind. Let me notice it. You know, again, it's going to depend on what our state of mind is and what our capabilities are for mindfulness in a given moment. But generally, uh, if there's a lot of reactivity, and we can be mindful, and sometimes the reactivity is too strong, can't really be mindful, then the best solution or the best response is to try to move away, to get out of the reactivity. You know, if it's really too much for us, then we want to come back to balance. But if we, especially in our meditation, if we can actually study the thick self, that is a lot of how we learn or study it in the uh, course of uh, daily life, right? So one of the wonderful practices that brings our practice on the cushion into daily life is, for example, let me have a lookout for reactivity during the day. Let me set an intention in the morning. If I'm reactive in the two ways, either grasping for something or pushing away uh, in some kind of compulsive way, let me study it. Wonderful daily life practice. You know? And again, we want to complement that by holding everything with some care and compassion. Right? Because when we start to look at the thick sense of self, it can be um, what uh, a focus that we're doing all the time. Oh, thick sense of self. Oh, thick sense of self. Oh, I have so much of a thick sense of self. Oh, that's a thick sense of self too. <laughs> right? And so um, we want to hold it with compassion that, that the, you know, our, our work in exploring our nature is challenging. You know, that's, I, I like the quotation from the poet Yeats who said, it takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. I believe that's true. Right? That to really look deeply and be there with one's conditioning and the complexities of one's being is not easy. And in terms of thick self, I just want to name a few of the complexities. Again, uh, there are uh, developmental issues. And sometimes, again, we need to uh, almost have a thicker sense of self initially as part of the developmental uh, logic of our lives, right? That, uh, and so there is a developmental nature to this teaching. I, I remember quoting Tanisaro Bhikkhu, uh, uh, a monk and uh, translator, scholar, uh, who lives in Southern California, who says that um, a strong sense of self actually is quite important in many ways. We need it to develop ethically, to have accountability, it's important for all sorts of reasons and that we go beyond that thick sense of self uh, at times as well. So again, complexities here that I want to recognize. Another one is that uh, often we have a thick sense of self where there are wounds, where there are difficult parts of our lives, right? Where there's something that's uh, unhealed, we're calling for resolution, and so having a thick sense of self can be a call for healing. Not as simply a matter, oh, 
go beyond that, transcend it. You know, and that's that's again an important subtlety here and complexity to to this particular teaching. The other way that we really look at the uh, teaching about self and work with it is that we try to open up where there uh, can be what we might call a thinned out sense of self, where the self is thinner. And that we try to develop in ways that cultivate this more thinned out sense of self. And I talked about two main ways to do that. One of them is more in daily life through developing a concept of flow and the other one is more in meditation. And so one of the uh, ways we can sort of most understand and access this thinned out sense of self is through the concept of flow developed by the concept developed by the Hungarian-born psychologist Csikszentmihalyi, who talked about the sense of flow as being uh, fully absorbed in an activity, full involvement, enjoyment of the process, uh, and so forth. And he said that when one's in a sense of flow, there's very little sense of self. Right? One is just in that. And it's interesting. So this is like really an access point. And when we actually look at our experience, we realize that we have that sense of flow more often than we think. We can have that when we're simply enjoying something, not much sense of self. We can have that even in conversation. When we're with people we're comfortable with and it's just flowing, we can have it in creative activities like music or art, we can have it in sports. Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, athletes call this being in the zone. <laughs> When you're just with the flow, there's very little sense of self, full act, full involvement, and so forth. And so we can really look for those kinds of experiences and even deliberately enter into them. We can say, let me always wash the dishes with a sense of flow. And that's cultivating a sense of not-self in the traditional teachings. And the other way... Uh, to cultivate it is more meditatively. And I think our core mindfulness practice really uh, cultivates more of a thinned out sense of self in which we are simply watching moment to moment what's occurring. Okay, let me just be with, let me let the thought come by. Let me let the body sensation come by. And in a sense, we just let the flow of experience occur I like to use the image that I've used here, I think, at times, of we are just watching the river before us. We're watching the river of experience. And we just notice, oh, look what came by. Oh, that was a thought. Oh, that was this thought. That was planning. Oh, body sensations. Oh, sounds. And in meditation, we just let that flow of experience occur in our mindfulness of practice. And that is, in a way, cultivating that sense of uh, that sense of a thinned out way of being with the self, a thinned out sense of self. You know, from the Buddha, this is how the training should be done. Concerning the body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mind. So we just let the experience come by and watch where the thick self develops, but increasingly we can be with those experiences with more of a thinned out sense of self. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of my and no such bias. 
we shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and liberation by wisdom. So we can notice the thick self and then increasingly let there be a more of a thinned out sense of self through opening to the flow and in meditation. So today I wanted to focus on a particular manifestation of the thick self, which I think is quite important. And that's the sense of being a doer. This is the first time I've ever talked about this. I've been interested in this uh, sense of being a doer because I've watched it in my own mind and my own practice. But this is looking at the sense of self of being a doer as being one of the ways that a thick sense of self manifests. And it's very, very interesting because we, I think, can get really caught in, in being a doer. So what I want to do for the rest of the time is talk some about the sense of being a doer. Have us uh, engage in some practices in which we explore uh, the sense of self without there being a doer. Okay? And, uh, and I want to invite us for the next week to explore this in our, in our, both in our formal practice and in our daily practice. So, and this is so, it's really something that we can investigate. What is the sense of a doer? And so, some of this uh, came to my awareness from looking, as I said, at my own practice. It also came from working with people and hearing them report some of their experiences. And it seems to be like a very deep conditioning that we have to be a doer and to be involved. Okay, let me do this. And there's a sense of self, let me get this right, let me do this. And one of the, one of the ways that we, we are aware of the conditioning is that it starts manifesting in situations where it's clearly not helpful. <laughs> and so, one example, someone goes on a vacation, is just there with incredible beauty, and starts saying, I need to do something. I need some stimulation. I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable just being present, right? And this may occur in our meditation as well. How many of you had had the experience of just sitting there, in a sense, doing nothing and getting anxious? Right? Right? <laughs> right? And so uh, it's very interesting, isn't it? Why is that? Right? And I, part of it, the answer is I think that there's a conditioned sense of a doer. So again, what I want to do here, so to speak, <laughs> and that was interesting. So I, I try in giving a talk to see if I can give a talk without there being much of a doer. Right? I remember, so I, I tell this story from time to time. Uh, John Travis, when he was mentoring me when I was first coming into more teaching, he said, here is how you, is a good way to approach teaching. Do your preparation, but then be aware of your body, be aware of your belly, be aware of your heart, and let your thoughts self-organize. So it's actually a practice for me to be present and let the, let the thoughts just occur, let the speaking just occur without there being like a controlling doer who says, okay, now do this thought, okay, okay, now do this. Or if those thoughts come, let them just come, right? So it's something that we can explore in many areas of our life. And it, it gets back to that sense of flow also, because in that flow experience, 
I don't think there's really a doer. Right? It's just happening, right? It's just happening, uh, partly because we know enough to let the activity occur. And the language is tricky because, as you'll see, the sense of doer kind of invades all of our, all of our uh, practice. I remember once I was given uh, retreat guidance by one of my teachers. And his retreat guidance was, it was actually be present, be connected to the absolute. That's what he said. He didn't say what that meant. <laughs> be present, be connected to the absolute, and don't do anything. <laughs> Which meant don't even meditate. Don't try to meditate. You know, don't do meditation. And uh, I enjoyed it a lot. It was pretty cool you know, not to be doing anything. And I remember the commentary at a certain point, like one or two days into the retreat, I am doing non-doing really well. <laughs> so there was, it was interesting, like the, you know, the doer uh, keeps on returning, right? It's like it can't, it can't easily be repressed, right? And so the doer comes back in those kind of situations. And so again, we can, one of the places we see it is when we're just trying to, we want to be present, right? And yet something comes in and says, do this, do that. You know, and sometimes it can take the form of wanting stimulation. You know, I want to at least be someone who's experiencing stimulation, right? And so uh, that's, again, I think a manifestation uh, of what I'm, what I'm calling the doer. Um, it can also sometimes manifest when we, again, it's, we can notice that when there's anxiety about just being present or anxiety about doing, you know, and I notice it sometimes when there's a sense of rushing that occurs. You know, oh, got to do this. And it's really, again, I've noticed it with a little bit of humor at times. When I've been on retreat, I, I've noticed that sometimes I've been on retreat maybe after lunch and I'm just sitting on a bench doing nothing. And some inner old conditioning says, you know, has me have an inner sense of being in a rush when there's objectively zero reason for being in a rush, right? But the conditioning is still there. So one of, the, one of the ways that we can notice this conditioning is to notice it when it's clearly and obviously really inappropriate. <laughs> and it can have a sense of humor. That's, I think it's helpful, right? When maybe when there's a sense of rush or I need to do something, you know. Um, you know. So I, I know... Uh, we, we have that slogan saying, don't just sit there, do something. And we have the reverse slogan sometimes for meditation. Uh, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> right? And so um, we can notice it in that kind of conditioning. So again, I think some of it manifests in this continual busyness or that we even take on too much. We take on too many activities we take on too much doing because there's a certain way that when we're doing something, the sense of self is what? Strengthened or fortified. And when we're busy, when we're busy or even overly busy, there's some, somehow there's some sense of meaning. So I think there's 
something about our doing which is really closely connected with our sense of meaning. Right? So it's a lot of complexities, but very interesting to investigate. And again, this is the first time I'm really, I think I've ever done a substantial part of a talk on this. So I, I'm, I'm really seeing this as a co-investigation that I want to invite that exploration and we can compare more notes next week. Um, so I think we have a certain kind of meaning from doing things, which again gives us a certain kind of satisfaction. And what is it that's behind overwork? I mean, some of it's capitalism, <laughs> right? Some of it's social structure and so forth. But I think there's some way that we get invested in being doers and want to get, you know, want to get busy, you know, and, and do things. Um, one of the places where I think it also manifests, which some of us may relate to, is when there is what we have so-called retirement, which is like a retirement from doing, isn't it? It's supposed to be that. And I think, there, you know, when you look to, people look to the experience of being quote-unquote retired, I think, I think there are a lot of experiences which are very interesting. One of them is that when we don't have the same sense of doing, there can be a loss of meaning. There can be some confusion, disorientation uh, that, that's there because our sense of self and identity isn't there in the same way. You know, I mean, there can be a lot of positive aspects as well, but that can, that can occur. We can also find that sense of doing in meditation, right? You know, I'm going to really do meditation. I'm going to really do this, do that. And there is, interestingly, there is a certain amount of doing which is required for meditation. Keep coming back to the breath. Keep coming back to the focus. Having a sense of uh, activity. You know, meditation is not simply just laying on your back with your arms out and saying, let me be present. It's like there is some doing involved in being present, interestingly. But meditation can also be a doing. I remember a few days ago when I was had this uh, talk in mind, I was meditating and I had the, these thoughts. Oh, that's a really good idea for the talk. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I should write it down. Right? And so forth, right? So it's, it's, again, humor is part of the situation. So there can be that sense of identifying as a doer. So... I think we get a sense of that conditioning. I'm sure there are a lot of other dimensions which could mention, which I didn't mention. And so what, where are we going with this? What's being pointed to? And I think what's being pointed to is what we might call more of a sense of being and presence and ultimately letting our doing coming out of our being. That's a simple way to say it, much as in the sense of flow. Can I have my doing come out of presence and being. Again, that's my aspiration in giving a talk. Can I be present? Can we be with our families and do what we need to do, but have it come out of a sense of presence? Not easy, right? But I think that's the aspiration. And there's a way in which we have maybe have lost touch with that sense of presence and being. And that maybe brought many of us to meditation, right? That we, that we, uh, or we're in this, uh, you know, complete merry-go-round of of doing, and 
for many of us, our first experience is meditation. Oh, I can really relax and just be present, right? Or I can be present with the sunset. I've never experienced that, right? So how many of you, when you first were meditating, really had a much deepened sense of just being present? Yeah, and a sense of being, right? A sense just of being, being. You know, I, um, in a former lifetime, I was a teacher of philosophy, so I still remember some of these texts. And I remember this famous text uh, from Martin Heidegger, a German philosopher called Being in Time. And right near the beginning of the whole book, he says, do we in our time have an answer to the question of what we really mean by the word being? Not at all. <laughs> right? Uh, interesting. You know? And then he has another like 500 pages to try to unpack it. <laughs> right? Um, but we get caught uh, in the doing and lose the sense of being. And so um, some of the best ways to explore this sense of uh, a doing coming out of being come from the Taoist tradition. And I, I brought in uh, my favorite translation of Chuang Tzu, which is by Thomas Merton. I've been told not completely literal translations, but that's another question. And I wanted to just read a few of these passages because here we have a sense of doing coming out of being. And that one sense of presence is primary. And they actually have a technical term for this, which is wu wei, which means usually translated as non-action, which another way we could talk about it is action that comes out of presence and being. Right? And so it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting approach. So let me find the passages I wanted to read. Let's see. The non-action of the wise person is not inaction. This, again, this is from almost 2,500 years ago. The non-action of the wise person is not inaction. It is not studied. It is not shaken by anything. The sage is quiet because that person is not moved, not because one wills to be quiet. And then uh, a story. This is called The Woodcarver. King, the master carver, made a bell stand of precious wood. When it was finished, all who saw it were astounded. They said it must be the work of spirits. The Prince of Lu said to the master carver, what is your secret? And what you'll hear, uh, his response, gives that sense of this non-action or being in the flow. And again, very, it's, again for a lot of us, it's really accessible where there's uh, an artistic, musical, creative activity. So, this is, so listen to this. King replied, I am only a workman. I have no secret. There is only this. When I began to think about the work you commanded, I guarded my spirit, did not expend it on trifles that were not to the point. I fasted in order to set my heart at rest. After three days fasting, I had forgotten gain and success. After five days, I had forgotten praise or criticism. So you can see he's forgetting all the ways that there's a thick self, right? After seven days, I had forgotten my body with all its limbs. But this time, all thought of your highness and the court had faded away. All that might distract me from the work had vanished. I was collected in the single thought of the bell stand. Then I went to the forest to see the trees in their own natural state. 
When the right tree appeared before my eyes, the bell stand also appeared in it clearly beyond doubt. All I had to do was put forth my hand and begin. If I had not met this particular tree, there would have been no bell stand at all. What happened? My own collected thought encountered the hidden potential in the wood. From this live encounter came the work which you ascribe to the spirits. Right, so that sense of non-doing, non-action, but still a kind of action, right? A kind of, of doing. The Buddha had a, you know, I think pointed to this a lot. You know, it's pointed to uh, the way that we thin out the self, and this also can be right at the heart of our doing, so-called. Um, once there was a, a, a deva we would call an angel who uh, was in dialogue with the Buddha and said, tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood, which is a sort of a metaphor for coming to awakening. And the Buddha answered, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. Here a sense of presence. How did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. So that's metaphorical, but there's a sense of things could happen, but there wouldn't be a, a pushing forward, a sort of overdoing. And also, it wasn't simply staying and doing nothing. Right? That'd be my, my gloss on that. And I'll give one more example of this, or maybe two more. Uh, this is from T.S. Eliot, has, a, has some lines, which I think really express this flavor. This is from, uh, uh, this is from his uh, Four Quartets poem. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. So he's coming back to that sense of presence. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. So you hear an echo of the Buddha. At the still point, there the dance is, neither arrest nor movement, but do not call it fixity. Where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. And so again, as you could hear the language. There is the dance, but there is not the moving forward, and you know, not, not really being in time. So this, I think, is what's being pointed to. Can we have that doing that comes out of being? And I thought I'd, I'd give one more quotation. And this is uh, from uh, a well-known graffiti, which I saw, I remember seeing in my uh, college uh, dorm bathroom. <laughs> okay. But I looked it up, and it's, it's actually quite widespread. Some of you may have heard this. This is, so the, um, uh, the graffiti is in three parts. It goes like this. this is a, remember, this is about uh, a being and doing. Okay? Uh, it has the quote, to be is to do, Nietzsche. To do is to be, Jean-Paul Sartre. Dooby-dooby-doo. 
Frank Sinatra. <laughs> okay, so that's so everything that we'll do further is an unpacking of Frank Sinatra. Okay, so I want to do some exercises now, uh, and these will be an exercise which you can work with, uh, and these are exercises that uh, for me have been inspired by some practices that I learned in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, which are sometimes practiced in some monasteries where they're trying to bring a sense of uh, a deep awareness which they first cultivate in meditation and bring it into the flow of daily life. And it's a very simple kind of practice which you can take home. And it goes like this. It's basically develop a sense of presence which we'll do just by meditating for a few minutes. And then bring it in, bring that sense of presence into a very simple activity. So we'll do maybe two or three activities. We'll come back to a sense of presence. So the basic, the basic rhythm is do what helps you to be present and then keeping that sense of presence as best you can, do a simple activity. Okay, so we'll, we'll do this now and then we'll open things up to discussion. So first... Just do what helps you to be present. It might be to meditate, be with the breath. And keeping the sense of presence, stand up if that works for you. Keeping the sense of presence and awareness as you stand up. Stay present. And now staying present, turn to your left. And now turn to your right. Staying present, now sit down. And stay with presence, stay with a sense of presence. Come back to that just for a few moments. And the second activity, staying present now, turn to a person next to you and one at a time, just for a minute or so, tell them what you're going to do this afternoon. <laughs> but in the, in the conversation, stay present. Okay? So staying with your sense of presence, turn to a person one person at a time, just for a minute, and I'll ring a bell to, to change. 
stay present. And if you want to close your eyes and come back to that sense of presence and then talk while you have a sense of presence. Okay, first person can go. <laughs> Just talking about what you'll do this afternoon. Now we'll switch and take, take a moment now just to come back to being present. Remember, and you can be present both in your, your listening as well as your speaking. So take a moment to come back to being present. The heart of this way of practicing is continually getting grounded and present and then bringing it out into an activity. Okay, so stay present for a few moments. Then we'll have the second person speak just for a minute or so about what you're planning to do this afternoon. Okay? Staying present. Let's come back and come back to being present. We'll do one more exercise. This will be a little more difficult. This will be inviting you silently to, let's say, to um, think about one thing that happened yesterday, okay? Just for a minute or so. So this is just thinking silently and we're going to invite uh, a sense of presence. See if you can have a sense of being present as you think, which is hard. This is harder. Okay, so first let's ground ourselves in being present. And now just on your own for 30 seconds or a minute, think of something that was meaningful from yesterday.
Good. So these, these were three practices. And again, this was inspired by uh, a Tibetan practice, which I learned uh, from the uh, Bon Tibetan tradition called mixing practices, which they do in some monasteries. We're not, not all that different from here, uh, what we did here, but working with, you know, sometimes uh, uh, deeper states of awareness as well. And one of the interesting things with them, with those practices, uh, is that one also tries to keep awareness when you're doing unskillful things. So we'd actually, when we did some of the practices, we would uh, get ourselves to be really reactive. You know, you know like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, uh, you know, ground and deep awareness and then trash talk someone else. <laughs> right, interesting. So anyway, I didn't, I didn't want to do that here. But uh, but basic idea, and this is really, it's uh, actually a very simple uh, practice that could be brought into one's uh, life at home, which is really to uh, help to move towards that sense of having one's doing come out of being. Again, so the two, in exploring the sense of doing, there are, again, these two main parts of our practice. First, seeing where there's that thick sense of the doer, really studying that, noticing that when it comes up, looking for that sense of a doer, and just with this kind of curiosity and a sense of investigation, seeing what that's about. And then secondly, seeing if we can open up to a sense of our doing come out of our being. So that's the suggestion for our practice here. And maybe I'll just, I had, oh, I had one other, maybe I'll close with this quotation. This is from, also from Chuang Tzu. When the shoe fits, Chui, the draftsman, could draw more perfect circles freehand than with a compass. His fingers brought forth spontaneous forms from nowhere. His mind, his mind was, meanwhile, free and without concern with what he was doing. <laughs> Again, this doing coming out of being. No application was needed. His mind was perfectly simple and knew no obstacle. So when the shoe fits, the foot is forgotten. When the belt fits, the belly is forgotten. When the heart is right, for and against are forgotten. No drives, no compulsions, no needs, no attractions, then your affairs are under control. You are a free person. Easy is right. Begin right and you are easy. Continue easy and you are right. The right way to go easy is to forget the right way and to forget that the going is easy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Chuang Tzu. <laughs> so we have, we have some time for any uh, questions about... Uh, this theme of doing, again, could focus on, especially on the sense of the doer and what that's about, our own stories of that, our own experiences on the one hand, and then how do we move into that sense of doing coming out of being, coming out of a sense of presence. So any, any uh, questions, or it could be reports from what you just experienced. How many people found that wasn't that hard to do? To have your, to have even, like even just the standing up, you know, or how many found that you could actually be fairly present with some doing? Okay, good. Yeah, so it looks like we have a question in the middle. We have a question here on the side. Top, over there. Okay, we bring the microphones to you. So here, and then in the middle here afterwards, you know, second. 
you see right, right in the center? Yeah, hi. Um, hi. Uh, not a question, but a comment. Thank you very much. This is really um, it kind of comes to what I've been experiencing yeah. with retirement. I retired last fall, oh, well. um, and, but I work part-time out of my home now, but it's been a transition. Um, and it's been lovely, but there has been something that, that's been unsettling or needed a transition, and I think maybe this is what it's hit, yeah. is I realized that having had a light, slightly more than full-time job for so many years, there was no question of what I should be doing. I had a job. You show up every day, you know what you do, you do that, and then you have free time, and that's fine. With retirement, it's been kind of a question, and I think that's what's been kind of unsettling, is this question of what should I be doing, or I should be doing something mm. um, instead of, and since I have a part-time job now where I get kind of assignments, I've liked the time when I have assignments because then I know what I should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. anyway, thank you very much. This yeah, yeah, keep on investigating. It's, yeah. it's, uh, I think you're, you're getting at some very fundamental aspects of this. And, of course, structure is helpful, but it's interesting. Just what's, what's there in a deeper way? Yeah. Uh, in the middle? You know, it's so interesting because um, I was telling my neighbor that I recently retired too. It's been a year. Yeah. So it's interesting that this is speaking to a lot of us. I retired with a large group of teachers. We've all been teaching public school for over 35 years. Yeah. And all my colleagues are throwing themselves into projects and work and volunteer. And I'm going, God, what's wrong with me? I, I don't want to volunteer right now. <laughs> and I'm following... Um, Part of it is my body is falling apart after not paying attention to it for all that mm. time because public school teaching, as many of you know, it's, it's trauma. You yeah. know, and I hadn't realized just how traumatic that had been over the mm. years. And I see myself as healing now. So mm. I'm doing gardening, I'm doing yoga, I'm doing cooking. And it's so interesting, all those creative activities. So I'm trying to do by not doing, mm. you know, to heal myself so then I can know what I also should, need, or am doing. Right, yeah, yeah thank you. So thank this you. has been very, very interesting for me. Yeah, yeah, very, thank you for that. And the language is all tricky and funny, isn't it? I'm doing non-doing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, please, yeah, right there. Um, I was just going to say that um, when you were discussing this, I think one of the the reasons I, you get into a spiral of doing, sort of in a frenetic way, is is very much to avoid being. You yeah. know, to to avoid that having to look deeply mm. and to think deeply about yourself. So it's an avoidance behavior. Yeah. Yeah, so very, very good point that uh, doing can be something that we use almost like a defense mechanism not to deal with things. Very, very common, for example, after uh, deaths, right? People get, uh, you know, uh, I think someone, yeah, someone, uh, a German writer once wrote a book called The Inability to Grieve, 
which, which, uh, and partly one of the one of the reasons that grieving doesn't occur is because people want to jump right into activity. And he was partly describing this as what happened after World War II in Germany, that a whole society just went plunged into work and couldn't really come to grips with what had happened, right? Until actually about thirty years later, when it, when it did happen more. But uh, that sense of uh, doing can be. Uh, 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 a form of avoidance, right? Very, very important. Yeah. Um, yeah, I retired three years ago. <laughs> and um, I uh, immediately, I think I was guilt tripping myself into you need to be productive and constructive. And I'm just now coming around to saying if I'm just quiet, maybe I'll find out what I would like to do with this uh, time in my life. So you're about two years ahead of me, I'd say. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. It's also, uh, I mean, you're pointing to an interesting aspect also of uh, having a sense uh, uh, how the do, one, one way the doing comes out of the be, of being is on listening very deeply for what's authentic and genuine as a po- and, and having that direct how one takes the next step or the next phase of one's life as opposed to kind of compulsively latching on to something, right? And it takes, it takes sometimes that just being quiet. You know, I know that's been very important for me, where I think of, you know, a story I've sometimes told of Gandhi at a very critical moment of the Indian independence movement when people wanted him to act and do. He said, I'm not sure what comes next. And he sat on the veranda of his house for six weeks and just did nothing. Uh, because he wasn't sure what came next and people were pressuring him and so forth. And and out of that six weeks of listening and doing nothing came the uh, intention for the salt march, which is generally taken to be a pivotal moment in the independence movement. So interesting. So that sense of having especially larger directions in one's life coming out of deep listening or listening to one's dreams and so forth, yeah. Others, uh, yeah, please. Uh, When you led us into thinking about what we're going to do later today, I noticed that I had to really effort. Like I I couldn't remember what I was doing today. So just that kind of like, you know, effort. I hadn't ever paid attention to the effort of getting that thinking mind going, yeah. like a gearbox or something. Yeah, that's really interesting that uh, sometimes this can happen after meditation, that uh, thinking, if the thinking has been quieted down, it's almost like, okay, thinking, <laughs> get to work, come on, <laughs> right? And so even here, just a, just a little bit of presence, and, and it was an effort to uh, crank it up, you know, <laughs> Right, so it's very interesting, and I, I know I've sometimes experienced after retreats, especially some of my early retreats, I would just be in this quiet zone, and my mind would not want to go to some kinds of thinking. It couldn't really go there. Well, eventually it could, but yeah, not initially. Yeah. It seems to me that there are, for me anyway, there are two different forces at work. One is... <clears throat> my need to be able to answer the question, who am I? 
Yeah. Um, and I could say I was a child, I was a student, I was a teacher, yeah. I was an executive, I am retired. So that I have a need to kind of put a label on my on yeah. myself. The other thing is I think there's a lot of social conditioning around that need. Is when you meet someone, you yeah. ask them, what do you do? <laughs> Great point. <laughs> and, yeah. and in fact, I just had a conversation with my friend Doug, um, who I haven't seen in a while. And one of the questions I asked him was, what are you doing with yourself these days? <laughs> yeah. So I think social conditioning and my own personal yeah. need for identity. Yeah, very, very, very nice. Uh, yeah, it'd be very interesting to compare those kind of greetings or when, when one needs someone one doesn't know. What does that look like across cultures? I'd be pretty sure that in a lot of cultures they don't ask, what do you do? <laughs> right? Right? It'd be very interesting to... I, I don't know the answers, uh, uh, answer to that, but... That'd be interesting, but you're right. It's like even, uh, yeah, that can, and, and of course there are certain answers to the question, what do you do, that are more socially acceptable than others. <laughs> right? So, so one, one, you know, one, okay, what do you do? I'm an unemployed artist. <laughs> well, in some circles that would be, that would be seen as good and others not so good, right? Please, yeah. Uh, in many cultures, instead of asking what do you do, you say where are your where are you from? Who yeah. is your family? Yeah, where are you from, or who are your ancestors? Right, that would be very common, right? So I think you're right. So I think what you're pointing to is really the way that our sense of identity uh, maybe has shifted to a sense of doing, right? Our identity comes more through doing than it may have in other cultures or other you know, other points in history. I think that's, that's very, seems to be very true, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, hi. Reflecting on this idea of what, what do you do, how, or what are you doing these days, I was thinking about when we ask someone, how are you feeling? Yeah. And the only times we do that is if they've recently been sick, yeah. maybe they're <laughs> pregnant. Yeah. And in... And there's actually only one real acceptable answer to how are you feeling, which is fine. <laughs> and so yeah. I'm just thinking about what if we actually asked people how are you feeling, yeah. especially people we didn't know, and, and it was acceptable to give an honest answer. Yeah. Yeah, or how are you in the present moment? <laughs> <laughs> right, but people are mostly just saying, you know, saying hello. Right, but we have these ways of doing that. So it's it's very interesting. I think I'm sure there must be people who have academic careers based on analyzing how people say hello to each other. Right. So okay, um, a fascinating topic, isn't it? The sense of doing identity through doing and so forth. So uh, the invitation is to explore in the next week both these aspects that we've explored. Uh, number one, seeing where there is a strong sense of the doer or something related to the doer. Like in, you know, you know what am I doing? Uh, you know, what should I do? Or, you know, look, look, at, look at those uh, ways of just talking to each other. Study it, you know. Uh, you know, experiment, you know. 
you know, maybe someone you're close to say what's happening in the present moment. You know, I, <laughs> I remember. So I remember in the '60s and '70s, uh, people sometimes there they didn't say what What do you do? They'd say what's happening. <laughs> right. So, uh, so on the one hand, look for where there's a sort of a what I would call a thick sense of self through the doing. Just notice the doer, how it manifests, all the different ways that we explored and that came up in the discussion. And then secondly, see if you can, uh, in certain kind of circumstances, have your doing come out of being. You might do something very much like the exercise we just did. It's pretty accessible, right? Not hard, right? It's even, see, see where it's easier and where it's harder. <clears throat> Probably for a lot of us, Simply the walking, the turning around, standing up was easier than talking, right? And maybe easier than thinking. So work especially with the areas that are easier. You can develop sort of, you know, develop this capacity more initially where it's easier. That's the way to develop it. And then experiment with what's a little more difficult, like talking, okay? with someone. And again, the, the rhythm of the practice is first stabilize in being present and then bring it out. So you could do this and maybe it just needs a minute to stabilize. Stabilize in being present and then wash the dishes or something like that, right? So it's very, very, very doable. <laughs> okay. Okay, so let's let's finish with setting an intention for the next week. Let me close by recognizing that we do this practice for ourselves, but also for others. And that the ultimate horizon of our practice is to benefit all beings. And may the fruits of our morning together be of benefit to all beings, those in our own circles and those beyond our own circles. So thank you. And to be continued. Dooby dooby doo. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.